Good morning. So glad to see each one of you are here. All of you that are joining us online, we welcome you as well. You know, this morning as I was driving in this morning to uh, come here to church, the the sunrise was just kind of beginning, the dawn, and the, right there along the bottom of the horizon, it was just all gorgeous and pink. It reminded me that this is the day that the Lord has made, and we rejoice in Him because He made it and because we are in Him. Psalm 47 reminds us that God reigns over the nations, that God sits on His holy throne. Colossians chapter 1 reminds us that Jesus created everything. Everything was made for him, by him. And so he is the one that reigns supreme. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high this morning, ruling and reigning. And so I invite you as we sing these first number of songs this morning that you allow your mind to go there. Remind, remember, remind yourself and be reminded through the lyrics of these songs that God is here, God is on the throne, and that we can put our trust and our faith in him. Amen? Well, let's stand and worship our supreme God. You were seated high before there was light. Through you and for you, everything was made. All authority has been given unto you. You're the head over all the King of Kings. You reign supreme over everything. You deserve our you deserve it, Lord. You deserve our worship, Jesus. Love and adoration. You deserve it, Lord. All the highest praises, Jesus. You made me. When at last you came to earth that blessed morning, and it won't be long, every knee is gonna fall, and every tongue confess you, Lord of all. Sing it out. You reign supreme over everything. You deserve our
Christ exalted over all. Trudy, leave the words up to that chorus. Just take a moment before your God and just ponder those words. The only Savior, Jesus Messiah, to you alone, our praise belongs. Christ exalted over all. footstool in your throne, declaring you the only God, the only true God. You are our Lord. You are the exalted King over nations, and you are sitting on your throne this morning. Oh, there's no reason that we need to fear. There's no reason that we need to be dismayed. When those feelings come, Lord, remind us. May this song rise up inside our spirit. And we be reminded who we put our trust in each and every moment and each and every day. We put our trust in you this morning by giving you our tithes and our offerings this morning. We thank you for all of the resources that you give us. And we worship you with them this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ushers, would you receive the morning offer? Oh, 
Jesus, even after a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more, that still won't be enough to fully express the magnitude, the majesty that you have and the full glory of who you are. And it's going to take eternity upon eternity that you will continue to reveal who you are and what you have truly done for those that call you Lord. So Lord, even if we had a thousand tongues to sing your praise, even those, even that wouldn't be enough. But we still obey you and come boldly to your throne of grace each and every day to give you the honor and the glory and the praise and the majesty that's due your name. So thank you again that through Jesus we can come into your throne room. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to fear. We can climb up on your lap, Daddy, and say we love you. Thank you. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew 24. We used to live down in Southern California. Please don't hold that against me. But we would travel to Idaho and with the kids in, in a motorhome. and Invariably, somewhere along the line, within the first half an hour of on the, being on the road with young kids, they would ask the question... Are we there yet? You know, it's funny how you, you have this, this journey that you get on. You get on a road and you're, you're traveling down the road and, yeah, and you get impatient. At least I do. The kids would. Are we there yet? Because we don't have a concept of how long it takes to actually get someplace. So I would teach the kids to look at the road signs. To look at the destination, it would tell us. And when you would see whether it you know, was Portland or wherever we were going that there would always be a number that would tell you how many miles to get there, right? Yeah, and so then you would say, okay, well, if I've got, you know, 875 miles, then i got to divide it by 60 because we all drive the speed limit. <laughs> and then that would tell you how it goes. I mean, any of you guys that have traveled it, you're just like, okay, well, I've got so many hours until I get there. And then so... Invariably, you're, you're driving along and then you're looking at the next thing. Well, how much more do I got to go? How much more do I got to go? How much more do I got to go? And the reality is you're not there yet. Well, when we take a look at Bible prophecy, it is much like that. It's interesting that all the signs along the road don't tell you how many miles that you have driven. It just tells you how many miles until your destination. Biblical prophecy is much like that. It, is, it causes us to look forward, not necessarily where we've come from or the re, in the rearview mirror. And as we pick up here in Matthew 24, we're picking up a, 
a time where Jesus gives to us his eschatology, which is the study of end times. He's giving to us what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Now, when we come to prophecy, there's a couple of different views in dealing with it. One, for the unbeliever, prophecy can be a death sentence. In other words, this is the destination, this is the end, and you're on the road, and when you get to the end of of this, you're just waiting for that date. Prophecy says at some certain time, judgment's coming and so is death. That's kind of a grim outlook. But for the believer, for the believer, it's a promise that has not yet been realized. In other words, it's, it's where I'll end up. It's my final destination where I want to go. As we take a look at prophecy, you can look at prophecy in such a way that, that it will freak you out. Because there's a lot of things in prophecy that says it's going to get worse before it gets better. And you can have that, that idea of, wow, I don't want to go through that. Or you can say, you know what? I'm okay in going through that because I'm looking at the final destination. Where I'm going to end up, where I'm going to go. And so as we take a look at eschatology, and, and again, eschatology or the study of end times is, is probably one of the, the, the greatest topics that people um, in Christendom look forward to. They study it. They spend time looking at it. Why? Because, because that's where we want to go. We know that this earth is not our home. Amen? We're looking towards heaven. And we know we're not there yet, right? <laughs> so in that matter, for the believer, this is the most hell that we'll ever see. Well, within this, we want to be able to take a look at, at prophecy with the right perspective. And how do we know that we're almost at the end? Well, I can tell you this. The greatest sign that will tell you that you are really, really close is the second coming of Jesus. That tells us that we're close to what? The end of this world as we know it. The end of all of these things. Where heaven and earth will be destroyed and a new heaven and new earth is established. And finally, Satan, sin, sorrow, and suffering will all be taken out. And that is where we want to be. We want to be in this place where Satan is finally, once and for all, defeated. Can you imagine what that would be like? No sin, no Satan, no temptation, no, none of that. No death. I'm tired of death. I'm tired of, of, of sorrow. I'm tired of the suffering. I'm tired of all the garbage that's going on. And that's why we say, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha, come quickly. So, what should a Christ follower do? Because Matthew 24 is Jesus speaking to his disciples and speaking to us. What should we do? Well, one, we should be ready. We should always be ready. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Precisely because we cannot predict the moment, we must be ready at all moments. At all moments. What if Jesus was to come back right now? Would you be ready? <laughs> Great Sunday school answer. But sometimes, for most of us, we're like, no, 
I got to talk to this person. I got to do this. This person is not saved. I haven't witnessed with this person. I haven't asked for forgiveness for this person. I'm not ready. I'm not looking. Why? Because we get caught with all the stuff that's around us. Jesus doesn't want us to get caught unaware. We want to read the signs. And Jesus now takes the role of the prophet. He's done teaching in the temple complex. This is his last week before his death. He has been in there. He has come Palm Sunday. He has done all of the teaching and everything in the temple complex. And he is done. And he is now going to speak to his disciples as he prepares for the cross, for his death. And so what does Jesus do? He leaves the temple complex. And again, if you've been with us to Israel, and we hope to go back soon again. He left the temple complex, went through the east gate, down through the Kidron Valley, up the other side of the Mount of Olives, about a two or three mile cross uh, valley view, sat down on the side of the Mount of Olives and just watched and looked. And then he begins a discussion with his disciples that we call the Olivet Discourse. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be working through Matthew 24 and 25, which is the eschatology of Jesus, or the study of end times per Jesus, and what he gives to us, the things that we need to know. Now, when we come to end times, this is one of the things that, that so many people have so many different views on. Perceptions, presuppositions, we develop all of these concepts and constructs of what's going to happen. Why? Because we want to try to figure it out. It's kind of like a mystery. We want to unpack it. We want to know it. My challenge to you is this. As we approach this, we want to go with the simplest words of Jesus. And we want to be able to understand these things according to what he tells us. We want to, as we look today, what are the signs? This initial discussion, what are the signs of the end? How are we going to, how long until we get there? And what are the things that we need to be watching in order to, to know that the end is near? Now, mind you, Jesus gave this, this discourse over 2,000 years ago. And the end has not happened. Does that mean that it's not going to happen? No, it is going to happen. But there are things that we need to understand in our microwave mentality. You guys know what microwave mentality is, right? 30 seconds or less. We have this idea, this construct that everything has to happen instantaneously. And in God's purview, he's not bound to time. But he does want to make sure that we understand these things. So it is going to be a journey and, and a good discussion as we take a look at these passages. I'm going to ask that you stand as we read through this passage here. Picture yourself sitting next to Jesus, looking at the Temple Mount or the complex with the big, glorious temple that is sitting across, large stones, gold shining, the sun coming through. You're, you're in an olive grove and Jesus has just finished and he is now having this discussion with you. Matthew 24, 1 says, Then Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. 
As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Well, tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. All these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. And then they will deliver you to tribulation. It will kill you and will be hated by all the nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased and most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out of that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect... Those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, there is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse there, the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give off its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already come tender, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So too... When you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So, 
as we take a look at this, one of the things that we know for sure is this. Prophecy is going to create questions. When we take a look at prophecy, especially biblical prophecy, when we take a look at how this all comes about, we're given this mystery that is being revealed to us, but we don't get it. I don't know of one person that can 100% be accurate on the interpretation of prophecy. Because we are human beings that have a failed understanding trying to understand the mind of God. But what he does give us is he gives us signs. And he gives us these illustrations to be able to pay attention for the major things that we need to know. And as Jesus leaves this temple courtyard and as he comes down across the, the Kidron Valley and comes up to the other side. The disciples are looking at this, and it's much like a sunrise. You've got to imagine the, the temple in Jerusalem was a glorious building. Herod, who was a great architect and a great builder, saw the temple and he thought, you know, this is something, this is something that needs to be upgraded. Why did he upgrade it? Because he was trying to ingratiate himself with the Jews to, to get on their good side. And so he paid a lot of money to upgrade the Temple Mount and the Temple Complex. It took about 46 years to, to upgrade the whole thing, to be able to do that. And it was a glorious building. And there was gold wrapped around the tops and the pillars. And, and by design, on Mount Zion, this sits up high enough so that when the sun would hit it, it would glisten and it would shine. It was the high point for the nation of Israel. It was the house of God where they would dwell. It was the place that was just Beautiful, much like a glorious sunrise. And imagine the disciples sitting across the other side going, wow, just look at that thing. And Jesus says, yep, and it's all going to get torn down. What? It's going to get torn down? No. No, it'll never happen. It'll never happen that this thing will be completely torn down, wiped out. As he's sitting there and having this discussion with the disciples, you can't miss the irony of where he is at. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives and looking across. That's one of the first things that we do when we go on tour, is we go to the Mount of Olives and we look across. Now, we don't see the temple now. All that's there is the temple platform that the temple stood on and the Dome of the Rocks. And we look at that. We have to imagine what that might be. But Jesus is, is seated, seated on the Mount of Olives looking across. It wouldn't be many days further that Jesus would ascend from the Mount of Olives. Jesus is declaring a prophecy of destruction from the Mount of Olives, which is the mountain that he will return back to. In Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, it says this, In that day, in his second coming, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will split in the middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half of the mountain will move towards the north, the other half will move towards the south. When Jesus returns, he's going to come back and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and that thing is going to split in two. Half of it's going to move to the north and half of it's going to move to the south. As we studied, in our, if you've been with us in our journey through the Bible, when we studied, there are tectonic plates that exist underneath Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives that they know of. 
There are underwater springs. And in Ezekiel, it tells us that there will be a spring that springs forth from Mount Zion, from the throne of God, that will flow out through this new ridge or this new draw that is made in the Mount of Olives that will flow out in towards the Dead Sea and life will exist again in the desert and the Dead Sea will no longer be a Dead Sea in the second coming. Amazing. But you can't miss this picture. Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives saying, that is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. And when I come back, he's going to come in this mountain is going to split in two. We can't miss the fact that the temple is the center of all Jewish life. It, again, it was the most glorious thing. And he says, do you see these things? Not one stone is going to be left on each other. And you think, well, that's no big deal. It's a little brick, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. When you do some research on the stones, the smallest stone that comprised of the temple itself weighed anywhere between two to five tons. The largest stone, building stone, is estimated at 300, or I'm sorry, 570 tons. It is 44.6 feet long, 15 feet thick, 10 feet high. That's how big the stones were that made up the temple. And he says that not one stone is going to be left on top of itself. And you say, well, how is that going to happen? What's going to happen there? In 70 A.D., when the Roman guards would come in and they would burn all of the things. Stones don't burn, but everything inside the temple would burn. It would get so hot from the linens and the veil and everything that was in there that would burn that all the gold leaf and all the gold wrappings and tops that were part of the temple melted. And the gold would go in between the cracks of the stones. And Titus commanded, I want that gold. And so all the stones were pushed off of the temple. And they would crash to the ground below. They were taken off stone by stone to gather up all the gold out of the temple. 70 AD, that prophecy was fulfilled within that. And Jesus says, you look at that, it's beautiful, it's going down. Did he really care about the building? No. He cared about what the disgrace happened. Remember, he just got finished being in the temple courts and they wouldn't listen to him. And he says, fine, you reject me. The thing you worship more than me is going to be destroyed within this. So the disciples asked a question. You gave a great prophecy. When is this going to happen? And when are the signs? What's the signs? How do we know you're going to come back? When are you going to come back? We're told in Mark's account, it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew that came up and asked him these questions. Tell us, we want to know the signs. We want to know how and when you're coming. Prophecy reveals something that's interesting. When you study biblical prophecy, you've got to understand that there is a lens that prophecy is given. It's a near-far lens. So the near is, is the near event that the prophecy declares. But it's a, a view, and we look through that near event to see the actual event that is going to take place that prophecy foretells. So as Jesus has given this prophecy, he's talking about the near events in light of the far events. Many of the near events in prophecy are pictures and types that get us to look to the far event. 
as is in this Olivet Discourse. So as we look at these things, we're looking through actual near events, historical events that took place with the view of the future and the future events. Now, again, in the church culture today, there's a lot of different views. Some people have, you know, and you hear about all of these terms, and I'm not going to try to define all of the terms. There's premillennial, amillennial, preterist, uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, post-trib, and all of these other things. Throw all those terms out. We're going to take a look at what Jesus says. And he says that there are signs that you need to watch for that tell you how close we're going to be. Don't get caught up with the events. Look at the destination. When is this going to happen? And how are we going to get there? How long till we get there? You're going to have lots of questions. And most of those questions are, are not going to be completely answered. You're going to be saying, are we there yet? And Jesus is saying, when you get there, you'll know you're there. So what does he start out? Well, in verses 4 to 14, he starts out with this conversation, as we read. And Jesus answered to him, and he says, first... What is the first and foremost thing that you need to know in signs? There is going to be massive deception that is going to be going on until the Son of Man comes. Pay attention that no one misleads you. No one misleads you because there's going to be many false Christs. This, this group of people that are going to come and try to wipe them out. Now, again... When we take a look at this, and in my mind, I, I think things very in a linear fashion. I hold to the Olivet Discourse, at least in this section here, as an overview of the events, and you can create a chronology of time that will move you through to the second coming. Just like I really believe that Revelation is a chronologically written book that takes you through the events that will take place in the end times. So Jesus is beginning this discussion that really lends to the hearers, to his disciples, from the time of the destruction of the, the temple in 70 A.D. to the abomination of desolation that he speaks about in verse 15. So if we were to say, well, what is the timeline that's in here? I really think that Jesus is laying out the timeline the events, the signs, the markers in a general and specific set of signs for his disciples and what's called the church age. When Jesus died on the cross and Israel turned their back on their Messiah, the 69 weeks of Daniel, and you can study those on your own, stopped. And there is a period of time of undetermined amount of time where God is reaching out to the Gentiles. And there's a whole study that you can, and Scripture supports that, and it's a period of time called the church age. What is it going to be like? Well, he describes it in the end that these are the beginning of the birth pains. I have never been pregnant. I never want to be pregnant. I don't want anything to do with it. My wife has had four kids, and the last one was a set of twins. And I can tell you this, there is the premature labor that takes place that we thought was the real deal. But it wasn't the real deal. With our first child, we were, we were in the hospital regularly the last month or so. We'd get there, and, and, and there's nothing more frustrating than going and thinking it's the day, and the doc going, nah, you're not ready yet. 
turn around and go back home. And you go again. And it's like, are we there yet? No, you're not ready yet. Go back and go home. And then the walking that would take place. Come on. And then, you know, the old wives' tales are trying to get this kid out. When we take a look at this first set of signs, these are signs that set us up to know that we're getting closer, but we're not there yet. And the first one is the amount of false messiahs that would take place. I did a little bit of research. Documented, documented false messiahs that took place. There were Jewish messiahs and any number between 1 and 15 during these time periods. In the 2nd century, there were 3. In the 5th century, there was 5. In the 7th century, there was 10. 8th century, there was 15. 12th century, there was in the 13th century, there was another two. In the 16th century, the 17th century, the 18th century, the 19th century, and the 20th century, all documented Jewish people that were declaring themselves to be Messiah. Did Jesus come back during those times? No. There was these false Christ, false messiahs in, in Judaism that was showing up and have shown up throughout history. Jesus says, beware of them. There's going to be an amazing number of false teachers that are going to, as he says here, mislead many. So what do I need to do? What do I, what's my takeaway from this? Don't be misled. Don't be misled by a false Messiah, a false Savior, a false Jesus. And then I got to thinking, well, what, how does that relate? Do you know that today, according in, uh, to the Barner Report, uh, in 2020, there are 4,000 different kinds of religion in the world today. 4,000. The largest is in the world today is 2.4 billion. You, know, you want to know what the second largest is? Islam. 1.6 billion. Are there people being led astray today? Absolutely. The great deception. So many people are being led astray by these false Christs and these false promises that are there. And these are just the signs. It's not the end, but it's there. Now, you say, okay, well, why is he warning about false messiahs? Well, I can tell you this, as we, as we read and we'll get to, when Jesus comes back, everybody's going to see him. You're going to know it. There's going to be no doubt of Jesus' return. In verses 6 to 7a, Jesus says, and... The end's not yet, but there's going to be a buildup of wars and rumors of wars. Has there been wars going on? For sure. In Jesus' time, in 66 to 73 A.D., there was a condition called the Jewish Wars. You can read about Josephus in, in his historical writing. Josephus was a Jewish historian at the time of Jesus. And you can read the Jewish Wars and the account of it during that time. That took place as Jesus prophesied. That's the near. But what about the far? Are there wars today? Yeah. Did you look at the news today? We got Russia that's moving in on the Ukraine. That's buddy-buddy with China. And Iran's doing their thing. Are wars escalating? Absolutely they are. And all over the place. In fact, Israel has been in a constant state of war since 70 A.D constant state of war but the end is not yet 
It's just a condition. Here's your sign. We're getting closer. Well, how do we know when the final is? How do we, if, if when Jesus comes back, we're all going to know it. How are we going to know that we're really closer? Well, I can tell you this. When Jesus comes back, there will be one last war. There is going to be the battle of Armageddon. And there will be no doubt when Jesus comes back and wages that war that it will be the last war. One of the byproducts in verses 7b to 8 of wars is famine. Famine takes place. When evil men take over and they, and they start oppressing people, famine and oppression are the result of war. and World hunger is on the rise. In fact, in the last, since 2019, it was, it was estimated that there are 9.9% of the people of the world that are living in famine, or 161 million people that are in a state of famine. That number is on the rise. What about earthquakes? Well, we live in the Pacific Northwest. We never have to worry about an earthquake. They talk about it. I grew up in Southern California. We had earthquakes all the time. In fact, the rule was, if it was anything less than a 4.0, you didn't even get out of bed. You just rode it out. It wasn't a big deal. Well, you think about this. According to USGS survey, uh, a recent survey, there is about 20,000 earthquakes around the globe each year, about 55 per day. And according to the long-term average, it has grown over 12 times in the last 10 years. These are recent numbers. Did a lot of Googling, you know, because you can Google just about anything. But the reality is, so we've got wars increasing, we've got famine increasing, we've got earthquakes increasing, right? We have false religion and false Christs increasing. Are we there yet? No, no. You're just getting closer to that destination because Jesus says, you're not there yet. And all of this, as he says, are just the beginning of birth pains or the general signs. Like a woman in labor that's preparing. And I got to thinking, well, should we as Christians be freaked out about this? The answer is what? No. Because we know where we're going. In Psalm 27, 3, it says, though... A host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. The war arise against me in spite of this, I will be confident. So what am I looking for? I'm looking for some specific signs. And Jesus gives specific signs for the church. Now, we, those are general signs in the world. But what about us? How do we know things are getting closer for us? This, this time in this, what we would call the inter-advent position between Jesus' first coming and second coming. For you, church, beware of persecution and martyrdom. How do we know we're getting closer? Because the persecution against the church is going to become greater. Is that happening in our world today? Absolutely it is. It's becoming tougher and tougher to be a Christian. There is more oppression against Christianity and those that are, that are Christ follower. And within this, there's going to be a martyrdom. You're, he says you're going to be hated by all kinds of men. You can read later Matthew chapter 10. Verses 17 to 25. It was reported in, in Voices of the Martyrs that uh, in 2020, 4,761 Christians were killed. 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. Now, you're not going to find that in national media, are you? 
But that's how many Christians died. And it is up 60%, 6-0, up 60% from 2019. It has increased. 60%. As a result of that, he says, beware of apostasy. Jesus says, many will fall away. One of the things that ends up happening is persecution and hardship, as it increases, false faith is going to be revealed. As life gets harder, more people are going to walk away of pretend faith because they really don't want to pay the cost. And so there's going to be a greater apostasy that takes place in these end days and in these end times. A Gallup poll, when they first started uh, recording church attendance, in 1937, church attendance on average was 73%. In 2020, church attendance is averaging now 47%. We've gone from 73% when they first started calculating this in 37 to 47% in the, in the 20s. What's happening? People and people are not believing. Why? Because it's becoming harder and harder to take a stand for your faith. It's costing you more. And that's why he says, beware of these false prophets to the church. Beware of the false prophets. Anybody that names the name of Christ and misleads people into damning heresies. There are people that name the name of Christ that call themselves Christians that are not Christians. They teach heretical things that are drawing people away within this. He goes on and he says, beware, church, of lawlessness. Now, we know lawlessness in the world, right? What does he mean by lawlessness in the church? When we stop believing in the inerrancy of God's word and the laws that God has given to us to live by, when we start watering down the gospel and we start watering down holiness, and we start compromising faith in order to be more like the world. Is that happening in our world today? Absolutely. Theology is becoming a a social gospel and contemporary. And we've got to push back against this. Do we know that to be true? For sure. In Revelation chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, the warning that Jesus gave To the church of Ephesus, he said this, but I have this against you. I know your works, you've got great works, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Your your love, your your holiness, the things that you would do that would be set apart from the world are diminishing. And now we can't tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian on how you live. That'll happen. But then he contrasts to the many that will fall away. There is the one that perseveres. The one that perseveres. Your salvation is not dependent upon you. Understand this. You are saved and held by the hand of God. Then what is Jesus saying? True faith is going to be revealed in light of persecution. You will persevere because of the true faith that you have. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration that's in you, you will persevere. You'll have the ability to do that. The capacity. You're not going to have to white-knuckle it. You will continue in that true faith. How long? Well, it's interesting that in verse 14, he says, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Do you remember what the Great Commission is in Matthew 28? 
19 and 20. Go unto all the world, preach the gospel, make, bat, or baptize and make disciples of all men, right? Last words of Jesus, go preach. How long? Jesus says, until the end. That's the responsibility of the church. Be the one that perseveres and keep making disciples until Jesus says, you're done. Keep doing that. Regardless of, of the things that will happen, we need to keep presenting the gospel. The whole Roman Empire at that time was the known world. We know that, that there is much more within the world today. We need to keep sharing that gospel, even if it costs us our life. Tertullian, early church father, said this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Being a Christ follower is going to cost you, and it's going to need to be your focus. Well, that's the sign that Jesus gave to the disciples. When you see this temple go down, all of these things are going to happen. But there's another sign you need to pay attention to. That's going to tell us that we're closer. It's called the abomination of desolation. You say, well, Carrie, what is that? Daniel spoke of the abomination of desolation in his, um, in his writings and his prophecies. And if you're taking notes, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27... Chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. Basically, it's a single event that will take place in the temple where there will be an abomination of the worship of the temple. In the intertestamental period, there is a, a time in 1 Maccabees where Antiochus Epiphanes, a guy that comes in, and basically says, look it, we're taking over the temple... And he built an altar of Zeus on top of the Holy of Holies and then slaughtered a pig, this, this ungodly animal, this, and, and spread the blood all over this temple. And, it was, and in those wars, they went to war. It happened in 167 B.C. In the temple, in 70 A.D., the Roman guard came in, they carried banners of the eagle on their banners, and they went into the Holy of Holies and into this place and set fire to the whole place that was there. What was interesting is that the eagle was something that the Romans would worship. And they desecrated the temple, and the temple was destroyed. In the future, the Antichrist will create an abomination of desolation. In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, it says this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Right? Falling away, then the abomination. First, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. What's going to happen is this. After the first three and a half years that takes place during the tribulation period and the apostasy takes place mid-tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to go in and he's going to sit into the holy place and he says, I am God, worship me. That singular event is going to be called the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that makes desolate to be worshipped as God. As the Thessalonians were worried about the fact that Jesus had already come. They were freaked out. Jesus came back, we missed it. He says, no, 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 no. There's a sign. You'll know you're really close because there'll be a guy that sits in the middle of the temple that says, yeah, worship me. Now, are we there yet? 
No. Why? What's one of the things that we know for sure has not happened yet? There's no temple. All we have is a platform. The temple has to be rebuilt for the Antichrist to be able to do that. Can that happen? Yes. According to the Temple Institute, they can have the temple up and rebuilt in one year. They have all the implements to reestablish temple worship. Crazy to think about it. But we're not there yet. Jesus doesn't focus on the details of the abomination nor the timeline. Remind you, these are the signs. When we get to Revelation, we will go through the chronological timeline because we don't have time this morning to be able to do that. But when we hit that, we will. But understand, we're looking for signs. Now, when the Antichrist does this, basically all hell breaks loose within this. When, he does, when it does happen, and to the Jews, he says, when you see this abomination take place, flee. In Zechariah 14.5, it says, you will flee by the valley of the mountains, and the valley of the mountains will reach Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord God will come and all the holy ones with him. In other words, what's going to happen is in this prophecy, he says, when you see this, get out of town. Don't go downstairs and pack your bag that you didn't pack. Don't go get something. Just run. In 70 AD, when Rome encompassed Jerusalem, went into the temple, burned down the temple, many of the Jews in the northern area went to this place called Pella. And that's where they went and they hid from these, uh, the Roman guards within this. Jesus says, when you have to run, when you see this, now, mind you, these are all the people that are here during the end times, the Antichrist, and all of, all of this. They're watching this happen, and they have to flee. He says, pray that your journey's not in the winter. Why? Because it's going to be harder for you to travel. Pray that you're not with a child. Why? It's harder for you to travel. Pray that it's not Sabbath. Why? Because you, by law, you're not supposed to travel so far on the Sabbath. By the way, everything will be shut down. Which leans us into the fact that we don't know the day or the hour that that's going to take place. We need to be ready and pay attention to the signs. And so within this, we see that when the Antichrist reveals himself, everyone will know that. And Revelation chapter 6 timeline, and if you wanted a timeline, you're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 6, 2, after the, after the first seal and the white uh, horseman is, is there, all the way to... Revelation 18, the end. That is that timeline that will take place. The last three and a half years of the tribulation period within this. This abomination, as verses 21 to 28 tells us, that it ushers in this great tribulation. Not just the tribulation that Jesus warns the church of in the church age, but a great tribulation. It's my position that the church will not be there. That the church will be in heaven. I believe that we are taken out prior to that. And there's a whole lot of, of reasons for that. Nevertheless, we need to be aware of it. And so Jesus says there will be this great tribulation. Jan Daniel chapter 12, 1. Daniel prophesies. He says, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, and at that time, your people, Jews, everyone 
who is found written in the book will be rescued. Those that are the elect whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. And this period of time will be worse. This last period of time, Daniel chapter 12, 11 says, From that time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. When you do the math, 1,290 days is three and a half years. So we, that matches Revelation itself. Who are the people that are in there following this abomination? When you read Revelation chapter, as I said, chapter 6, 3, all the way to 1824, there is an accounting for 144,000 Jews, 12,000 Jews from every tribe that are sealed by God and protected through the tribulation period. Also those that come to faith. So I believe that this is all those people that are being warned. When you see this, run. Run. Do we get caught up whether we're going to be in it or out of it? The warning is pay attention. Pay attention to the signs. And Jesus says it's going to get worse before it gets better. When are we, what are we looking for? What's the next sign we need to see? The return of Jesus. Where he says, as lightning strikes in the sky, and everybody sees that lightning... So shall come the Son of Man. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, if you remember in Jesus' ascension, it says this, as the angel spoke to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in the sky? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Jesus will bring the last war when he returns, end war, and the hold of the Antichrist and all of these things. Revelation 19.15 From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fear anger of wrath of the Almighty. Verses 17-19 to 19 of the same chapter. And then I saw an angel standing on the sun, or in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in the mountains, or mid-heaven, Come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses of those who sit in them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him. He who sat on the horse, him who sat on the horse and against his army. That army is the church that comes back. We don't fight. We're just there. And Jesus, with the word of his mouth, wipes everybody out. And then he calls to the birds, supper time. Hence the vultures come in. What are we looking for? Basic signs. Generally, it's going to get bad. Generally, it's going to get bad. There's going to be an earmark that when the abomination of desolation takes place, it's going to get really bad. And then when Jesus returns, then he takes control. And will establish his kingdom. We need to watch and be ready. The sign of Jesus' return will be seen by everybody coming. The sun, the moon, and the stars, as he says here in verses 29 to 35, are going to be your signs. Everything is going to change. A cataclysmic change. We see an eclipse is a big deal. Wait till Jesus shows up. It's going to be a really big deal within this. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, 
he says this, I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man coming, and he will come in the Ancient of Days as he presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all the people and the nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And within this, we understand that he will establish his kingdom on earth over everybody that is in the earth. Well, who are the people that come back with him? The church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, which is a passage that leads to, to the conclusion that, that the church is with him. He says this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive remain are caught up. Literally, rapturus is the Latin word, snatched up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord within that. Now, just understand this. God's got you. God's got you. There's a couple of trumpet sounds. The first trumpet sound we're going to hear, that is for the church to be taken out. The second trumpet sound will be the ingathering of all those that are left on the earth. For what purpose? To enter into the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign that Jesus has as he finishes business on earth with Israel. And we will be with him. How do we know it's close? He says this. You know it's close to summer when you look at a fig tree and the fig tree is growing new limbs and leaves. It's a sign that summer is near. Just watch the signs. Watch the signs. And the signs will tell you that you're getting closer. Watch for the signs of destruction. Watch for the signs of tribulation. That will tell you that you are getting closer. If we were to step back and take a 30,000 foot view of history... Would we, t would we see the signs that tell us that the end of the world and the end of the age is getting closer? Between pandemics, famines, violence, lawlessness, and all of these things, apostasy? Yes. Then how should we live? We should live as people that are looking up and listening up. Because when Jesus calls you home, whether it's today through, through, through death, the doorway of death, or the rapture of the church or whatever it is that he calls you, you're ready to meet him. So as we end this, as we end our time, and we'll continue on in this study, are you ready to meet him? Are you looking up? Don't get caught up in the things of the world. It will all perish. Jesus is coming back. And we need to watch and be ready for his return. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we can watch and we can be ready. God, I thank you that we can look to this, these signs that you've given to us. Lord, help us not to be so caught up with the things of this world that we would, that we would miss you. That God, help us not to be distracted as people would say, well, well, he's here or he's there, or he's come back, or, or this war or that war or that famine. Lord Jesus, those are just mere road signs. We're looking for that destination. We're looking for that calling. We're looking for the presence of the Lord Jesus. Because when you come back, Lord Jesus, you will set everything straight. 
Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And in the interim, maybe this morning you're, you're struggling with the world situation, all the things that are going on. You have great anxiety. You're struggling with depression. Struggling with, with all of these things that are going on. Jesus says, don't worry. Look to me. He's got a plan. And the journey is great. But the destination is even greater. So just pray. And be ready. Watch. Because your redemption draws near. God, we thank you for this time. Let's all stand and we'll close with this song. All of the earth, nation, highway, a path for the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Call back the sinner, wake up the saint, let every nation shout of your faith. Jesus is coming soon. Like the bride waiting for her groom We'll be a church ready for you Every heart longing for our King We sing like a bride Like a bride waiting for her gloom We'll be a church ready for you Every heart longing for our King Lord Jesus, come, even so come, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus, come. Take us out of this place. Lord, we are looking so forward to being in your presence and being set free from the oppression, the destruction, and all the things that are here. But, Lord, may your will be done. As you said, the gospel must be preached to all the nations and all the kingdoms, and may we become those preachers. Lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Let me pray us out. God, I thank you. I thank you that you have given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness, and you haven't left us unaware that you've given us a roadmap and signs to know what the future holds and how we should live. And may we live a life that is holy and blameless before you. And may we continue in true faith. Even in times of persecutions, may we continue and trust in you. Lord Jesus, come. We thank you for their time. We praise you in, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen and praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. 
Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.